Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani and welcome to episode 49 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today we are joined by two key iHeart Media executives, Chairman and CEO Robert Pittman and President COO and CFO Richard Bressler. Bob and Rich tell LineTree CEO Arie Borkoff about the media company's robust strategy for growth centered around their industry-leading portfolio of radio stations, a massive podcast network, and a thriving and influential events business. Join us for a fascinating discussion around the strength of the audio sector, a theme we're following very closely here at LineTree. Enjoy. Well, I am really thrilled to be sitting here today with two of the most dynamic leaders in the entertainment industry, broadcasting juggernaut, iHeartMedia chairman and CEO, Bob Pittman, and the president, COO and CFO, Rich Bressler. You guys are uh, the dynamic duo and partners in a lot of value creation so far and a lot more to come. For those of you that don't know Bob, he has a storied background. He is the co-founder and programmer who led the team that created MTV and during his long career thus far, was the CEO of MTV Networks, AOL Networks, Six Flags, Theme Parks, Quantum Media, Century 21 Real Estate, and Time Warner Enterprises. He was also the COO of America Online, later became the COO of AOL Time Warner. Bob is also a founding member of the Pilot Group, a New York-based private investment firm, and is a dedicated philanthropist. You may not know this, but Bob's history in radio actually began at the age of 15, when he worked as an on-air announcer in his native Mississippi, and you'll hear that in his distinct voice. He's also an avid flyer and a pilot, and probably the only media executive that's ever flown me in a helicopter quite successfully, so thank you for that. We're alive. We are alive. We're here today. Rich is a friend for a long time and is, the, as I mentioned, the president and COO and CFO of iHeart. He has a similarly impressive background. He joined iHeart Media in 2008, by taking a position on the board, and then later became president, CFO, and COO in 2013. Prior to iHeart, Rich spent many years at TH Lee as an investor, and before that was the CFO of Viacom, and before that the CFO of Time Warner. He began his career at Ernst & Young and has a plethora of experience across the media, entertainment, digital, and out-of-home sectors. So thanks for being here, Rich. You've been in this office many times, so thanks for being here again. Yep, thanks very much, Ari. It's kind of interesting for me to be talking to you guys on a podcast because iHeart is one of the leading podcast players. What do you mean one? Business. Well, the leading podcast. <laughs> the thank you. Thank you. I feel better. Yeah, thank you. And I'm appreciative that Kindred Cast has been featured actually on the iHeart platform and we are available there. So I do appreciate that. But it's really about you guys today, not us. I really wanted to give people a sense first of the reach of iHeart because iHeart's not thought of in my mind as a broadcaster. It's really thought of as a media company. And the media companies are measured by its reach. And when you think about the population of the U.S., 93% of the U.S. population is exposed to radio. And of that, over 85% or approximately 275 million people in the U.S. are reached by iHeart, more than any other media company. Is that the way that you think about it in terms of reach? Yeah, I, you know, I think that we think of ourselves as a multi-platform company, but it's all about reach. And it's all about how many times can we touch the consumer and how engaged are they. We are as you say, reach almost everybody, reach 91% of Americans. 
But our social, we reach 141 million social followers, which is why we do this incredible social impressions on anything we do. And to put that in perspective, that's uh, almost three times the size of what Netflix has and about four times Spotify in terms of social reach. We've got a digital platform. We're the number one commercial podcaster and on and on. And our idea is that we're built around audio. We're built around this idea of companionship with the consumer, that we are a friend. We're a friend sitting in that empty seat next to you in the car. We're a friend talking to you while you're shaving in the morning. We're a friend talking to you while you're waking up or while you're doing some work in the house or at the office. And we started as a broadcast radio company, but we realized that the experience was not limited to that one technology of over-the-air broadcast that the consumer wanted us to be wherever they were. So our programming strategy and product strategy turned out to be wherever our consumers are with the products and services they want will be. And that's led us into all these other places. Yes, broadcast is still the big player. And if you add up Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, our digital service, all that only accounts for about 12% of listening. The rest is broadcast listening in the universe. So it's still the big platform. There are a billion radios in America. Alexa has just made radio even more popular because suddenly we have a clock radio again. We have a bathroom radio and a kitchen radio. And all these other platforms has just pushed us out. When Rich and I began this journey, I came aboard and was interested in this opportunity because the thesis was that technology disrupted TV with the consumer and TV with the advertiser. With radio, we made the bet that actually technology would help us with the consumer, still disrupt us with the advertisers. Well, the good news is if we have a consumer relationship, with just broadcast radio alone, they spend 31 minutes a day with us, I think nine different occasions on broadcast radio throughout the day, add on all these other platforms we have, and the consumer staying with us all day. That's very powerful. We can figure out, and we have figured out, how to catch up to Facebook and Google, which have all the data. What they did is they used technology to change what the advertiser wanted instead of spots. They now want data. They want you to be able to target people in unique ways. They want attribution data, et cetera. We spent the last three or four years building that to the point that we now have that. So technology's turned out to finally be our friend there. And finally, when you look at the world of marketing, it's math and magic. Yes, I need information, but once I spot a consumer, I know where they are. That doesn't mean I can influence them without some magic. Radio's always been spectacular in magic. You know, Elvis Duran coming on the air saying, wow, Tate's cookies, have you tasted these? And the other people in the show say, yeah, and they have a discussion about it. That's a whole lot better than a little search box that in the corner says it's an ad that it's says content. Tate's cookies. We have magic. We were deficient in the math part because we were still the old way. If I got some Nielsen ratings, you want to buy some spots. We now have the math where we caught up and we now have the data on the consumer and can use that in our advertising. And we have something that's very special is it's hard to beat the magic we have. So as a marketer, I want the math and magic. I found them and I can influence them. I can cause a reaction. I can connect with them. And that's what we're expert at doing. You know, it's interesting, Ari, just to pick up on the thing Bob said is that word companionship. And recently there was some research that was done that talks about trusted media. Like what's the most trusted medium out there for consumers, especially in this day and age? And the most trusted medium out there was radio. And the most trusted medium out there within radio, even above radio, was iHeart. And we looked at that and we said, wow. And then we took a step back and said, well, why are we surprised? Because we're built on that companionship. We're that trusted friend, as Bob said, sitting next to you in the car. 
And like a friend, you trust what that person says, and you're going to try a restaurant because that person says, or you're going to try taste cookies because Elvis Duran talks about taste cookies because he's your friend, right. and you're going to do what your friend well, says. Part of what I want to do today on this segment and the podcast is really to debunk some falsities and some myths. I mean, radio broadcasting, some people think of it as being a older demographic that's listening. That reach I was talking about reaches maybe the adults, but in the cord-cutting world, you miss the millennials. So have the younger generation also picked up on radio broadcasting, or is this some of the thing of the past? Yeah, that's the, the great news for us is unlike television, teens listen to the radio in the same percentage they did in 1970. We are growing new users. You know, all those marketers who said, millennial, millennial, millennial. The new millennials, Gen Z. Those people that started millennial marketing 12 years ago, guess what? Those are old people now. You want the young people? It's Gen Z, and we've got them. By the way, it's not a surprise. If you think about radio, it's probably the only medium where parents teach their children to use it. As a matter of fact, when your baby's in the car seat, they're strapped in, they're watching their parents do what? Play with the radio. And so they learn it. They're a part of it. They ride to school. You have the fights. My teenage kids are just moving out of that age group. They fight over which radio station on the way to school. And that's what's going on when I was a kid. So it's a very much a part of people's lives. If we do radio the right way, people have to participate. It's very social. I want to be involved. And teenagers probably do that in spades. Right. But tech has been coming into the media industry and disrupting it in a big way, right? So how have you incorporated tech into the iHeart business? And have you really not seen anything change as a result of technology innovation? Well, you know, it's funny. I've been around a long time and I was at AOL when we had half the traffic of the internet came over AOL. So I was there in sort of the beginning of making the internet mass market. I think basic human behavior hasn't changed one bit. What changes is how we do it. Things replace other things, and it's always what's easier and more convenient, and that's been the mastery of technology is making things easier, making my phone in my hand instead of running around the house to wired phones or a microwave oven or, you know, you pick it, that easy wins. So for us, we're agnostic as to technology. It's an opportunity for us. What we do is we build a relationship with the consumer. And I don't really care whether they're listening to us on their phone or listening to us on their Alexa or listening to us on their AM, FM radio. It's still the relationship. And by the way, the consumer doesn't care either. The consumer looks at their phone. They think it is a radio. They don't know there's not an FM chip there. They're actually coming over the Internet. It's not and, really just about the car. Right? And they don't care. What they want is we all crave companionship. We all crave humans. It's basic human need. If you look at people in a car, and sometimes they're listening to their own music collection, and then for some inexplicable reason, they turn it off and turn on the radio. Why did they do that? They did it because you can't be away from humans that long. We're social animals. We're pack animals. Got to be there. And radio is that. Matter of fact, on the radio, you'll hear a couple of times an hour, no matter which one of our stations you listen to, some listener on the air talking. Why? Because we want to make sure it sounds like a social place to be and reinforce that behavior and continue to build that relationship. Yeah, and it's interesting because you saw it out a little bit already with talking about some of the perceptions about radio. We are on, as Bob alluded to, over 250 devices. So we need to be where the consumer is. 
we didn't know three or four years ago Alexa was going to be as big as it was, but we know we needed to be on that device just in case. We never know what the next major explosion is going to be about the way consumers are going to receive audio out there. And I also find a couple different things. One is in all the years that we've been in running the company, I don't think anyone's ever asked either of us or said to either of us, oh my God, I heard Ryan Seacrest on digital or I heard Ryan Seacrest on terrestrial. They just know they want Ryan Seacrest wherever they are. They want him on iHeart and they want him wherever location they are, they want to be able to receive him. And the second thing that I also find interesting is because we are on every device and we're so easy to receive, some people say to me, well, I don't listen to radio anymore, but, you know, I love Elvis Duran. Well, what do you think Elvis Duran is? It's Z100, it's iHeart, it's radio. And, and I think because we just follow the consumer, sometimes people don't always realize that they're listening to radio. If you go through and look at us versus other broadcasters, we've been very open to multi-platforms. But if you look at our listening, we are twice the size of the number two radio broadcaster and audience. We're six times their size in digital. What does that mean? It means they stuck to one platform and we have many platforms. And we continue to look, as Rich said, to more and more platforms to just make it ubiquitous, that no matter what you want to do to reach us, we're there. You want to listen to us on the video game machine? Do. You want to listen to us on the smart TV? Do it. That we're able to continue to be there wherever they are. I was going to go there because not all radio businesses are created equally. I mean, we have seen challenges for the radio industry through some of your peers. And it's not just about balance sheets and et cetera. It's part of the issue. And I think what you've done is converted it from radio to a brand. I mean, the iHeart brand travels with you. The Z100 brand travels with you. The Ryan Seacrest brand travels with you, right? So you're maybe afforded the ability to use on many platforms because the brand is so strong. That's what I'd like to talk about a little bit because that's really the foundation of any sure. media that's been successful. Well, look, we had a problem when I got to the company and we started looking at all these stations. We had 850 radio stations. And basically, the company was sort of a portfolio manager of these disparate radio stations. All had great local brands. We had to figure out a way to unify them. So we took a book out of the Pixar story. We created this master brand called iHeartRadio. If somebody tells you an animated film is a Pixar film, you think, oh, that's going to be better than any other animated film because the master brand gives it value. Likewise, the consumer research shows the consumer thinks a radio station could be better if they know it's an iHeart radio station. And so we've been able to unify all of our stations under the iHeart master brand and the umbrella. Now we can do the iHeart Radio Music Festival. Now we can do these different devices. Alexa play Z100 on iHeart Radio. We're able to build out a national brand with incredibly strong local execution through local brands and tie the two together. No one's done that. No, they haven't really done it in the TV business either. Yeah, that's where the video business is really lacking, right? The streaming platforms are really national or global, right. but missing some of the local streaming. Right? When you think about it, because you're hitting on, and I want you were talking about we're going to debunk the myths. Spotify, Pandora, those services, Apple Music, they're in a different business than we are. Their ancestor was Tower Records. Our ancestor is still radio. All throughout the history of recorded music, we've had, I discover my music on the radio, which are my friends, and it's a conversation. Remember, we're not music. 25% of our stations don't play any music. We're companionship. We happen to play music because that's what friends often do. They play music for each other. So we're just aping an existing experience. When you look at Spotify or Apple Music, that's where people store their music and where they buy it. 
And by the way, 70% of Spotify users say the main way they discover new music is FM radio. So you hear a song on the radio, you put it on your playlist. Uh, in the old days, you heard a song on the radio, you bought the record. The same experience is going. So you shouldn't confuse the two. Although some people go, wow, they're both playing some music right now. Yeah, in about a minute, a disc jockey's going to come on the air and start talking about a lot of stuff. And over here, it's just like your playlist, your albums, or what in the old days, the original playlist was a 45 record stacked up on the record changer, and you put them in the right order you wanted to them, they clunk down, and that would be your playlist, right. how you order it. So things are still the same, even though the technology of how we do it has changed radically. Yeah. I said uh, one of the themes that we picked up on for 2019, and I wrote about it in our letter, was that the ear is undervalued versus the eye, meaning that audio is undervalued versus video. I'm assuming that given who I'm talking we, to. We would agree with you. You yeah. agree with that. I think it's also when you look at that experience of the eye and ear, it even is true in TV. Most people are listening to TV. If you believe that there's a second screen, by definition, they're listening to TV. When I was in the TV business, a TV show is unwatchable until you put the soundtrack on it. Unwatchable. And you realize the power of it. If you watch a horror film, turn off the sound, it won't scare you. On the other hand, turn up the sound and go in the other room and listen to it and it'll still scare you. What would Jaws be without that soundtrack? You know, you've got to sweeten the soundtrack and build the soundtrack. And that is actually motivating most of the emotions, not your eyes. And when you understand that, you begin to appreciate the power of the human voice. Why are podcasts big? You know, people say, oh, my gosh, podcasts, where's the picture? The consumer doesn't want a picture. There's so many occasions I can listen to my podcast that I couldn't possibly rivet my eyes on something. But I'm driving a car. I'm working out. I'm walking. I'm working and sitting at my desk, and the podcast is going. People are looking for that kind of experience. And by the way, when I'm with friends, really good friends or my family, sometimes I'm not even looking at them. We're just talking. I'm lying on my back on the couch talking. We're not looking at each other in the eyes. We're carrying on that. And that's the basic human experience. I believe as a marketer and a programmer, you always go back to just fundamental human behavior. And what we've done as a company is tapped into that. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting if you think about for all of us that grew up on jingles, yeah. right? Just yeah. think back to your childhood. Think about the jingles you remember growing up all the time. And that's like, said, oh my, that power of sound. I mean, we can do all this research and we do research. And Bob used the example of horror movies, which is one of the ways we've broken into the TV and movie industry, which have become a top advertiser for right now. But people, just like I said, think back to what you remember growing up. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I can still you know. sing the Winston tastes good like yeah. a cigarette should. Why that stuck in my head, I have no idea. I can't remember what I ate yesterday for dinner, but I can remember that. Those things, they call them earworms. They get in there and they're not coming out. Yeah. Well, also you've incorporated events very nicely off of the platform. So you really made it a, a multimedia company. Whose idea was that in terms of the iHeart Festival, the Jingle Ball? These are stalwart temples on the calendar now for anyone with children or obviously uh, anyone that loves music. So how did that come about and why is it a must-have or must-attend event for even the artists? Well, Rich and I were very involved in it. Rich was the primary investor at TH Lee when we did the festival. And I came to the company and built the new iHeartRadio app and said we're really going to go for it. We're not quite 
developed the whole master brand strategy, sort of put our toe in the water. And I went to the board and said, you know, we've got to launch this thing. We're not some Silicon Valley startup. we got all this power. we got to do something different. The last big concert I'd done was when I was at MTV. I did Live Aid. And so I said, you know, we're going to win a Live Aid again, mixing all these artists on one stage for a couple of days and something people have never seen. I'm not sure if people thought that was the same move. Well, I, I could even enhance it because since Bob was the one that came to the board and I was uh, on the board at that period of time, and Bob came to the board and suggested, gee, well, we're going to launch the iHeart app, and um, I want to do it over three days at a festival in Las Vegas. And everybody on the board said, well, Las Vegas, nobody goes to Las Vegas for anything but fights. You know, this <laughs> is seven, eight years ago. And he said, well, well, I want to do Las Vegas. I want to do it in September. And I was like, oh, my God, nobody goes to Las Vegas for music and never anybody goes to Las Vegas in September. And you kind of fast forward to where we are today. So of our 20,000 events, it's the biggest event in the world. I think the board thought, okay, let Bob have his say, you know, for a year or so, and then we'll kind of go back and we'll forget about that that ever happened. And it's not just that. It's not just from an event standpoint and being the biggest event in the world. And I think, you know, establishing the iHeart brand, which really said the company was looking forward as opposed to looking in the rearview mirror and connecting with consumers. But if you go back and look at all the advertisers we've introduced to radio, to audio through our events out there, starting with the iHeart Music Festival, that then became big believers on a year-round basis in the effectiveness of the medium. So the events for us are not about the ticket sales. Most of the tickets are for our advertisers or for the recorded music industry or for contesting for our listeners. But it is a great way, one, as a promotional vehicle, and two, to introduce advertisers often to the medium and show the effectiveness of the medium. It's very important to our brand building. And, you know, we believe in brands. We cherish the iHeart brand, and we work in many ways to make that brand bigger, better, more inclusive. The idea of physically being somewhere is very important. You know, we took the Jingle Ball on Z100 in New York and turned it into a national event, and it's now the big holiday special on the CW TV network. It's the big holiday special. It's this wonderful franchise. We built the first podcast award show in January in Los Angeles, and we constantly look for these opportunities to show off the brand, connect in person and live. And by the way, we, of course, broadcast it on the radio. We put it on digital. We put it on, in many cases, broadcast TV. The award show this year is going to be on Fox. And we're able there to sort of keep, again, this sort of omnipresent relationship with the consumer. Everywhere they are, we are. One of our common friends, I will not name the person, but I will give them credit. They'll know who it is when I say it. When we were all getting together at your Jingle Ball event and obviously all the adults were congregating while everyone's having a good time, we said, man, we must be a bunch of Jingle Ballers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're so fortunate enough to watch that and see Cardi B and everyone else. It's a lot of fun. It is fun. Yeah. But that's the way you approach the advertising community also because you approach them with a sort of a, a flywheel multi-product approach, right? And you can actually sell advertising across different entities and products. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to our business model, which said simply, obviously, always challenging to implement, and we have to constantly challenge ourselves, but we rent our consumer relationships to our advertisers, simply said. So that means we need to be, back to a theme that you've been hearing for the last few minutes, everywhere our consumers are, we need to be, regardless of the way they get the signal. They need to be engaged. As Bob pointed out, they're engaged 31 minutes a day. And so how do you look at renting that relationship? And from an advertiser standpoint, an advertiser, all they care about is they, I give you a dollar and you give me $6 back, which on average were a $6 ROI. And as long as we can do that 
and be transparent. You know, Bob alluded to the fact about the math and the magic and that we're getting better at the math. And we talk about Google and Facebook and attribution and getting credit for that, you know, those advertising dollars given us. But that's kind of our simple business model. And that's why whether it's podcasting or any other medium that comes along that consumers are interested in, we have to be there. When you think about engagement, we talked about reach, but we also have this incredible engagement. As Rich mentioned, our broadcast listeners with us 31 minutes a day. Facebook is less than that. It's in the 20s. And everybody always crowed about, my gosh, look at that engagement. And the broadcast TV networks are in the teens. One of them is actually in the high single-digit percentages. So we've got that for our broadcast. Then layer on top, the social, layer on top, the digital reach, layer on top, the podcast. And suddenly we've got this sort of, again, going back to this omnipresent relationship with the consumer as a good friend would. Yeah. So I want to talk about, and I'll just note that there are public filings out there that go through the process of restructuring what is a great company and had a bad balance sheet into a healthy balance sheet, which is a process that we've seen a lot in media and that you guys have gone through and are coming out of now. And although that information are in the public filings and I would point people towards them if they want to understand how the new securities will look and will trade, et cetera. But the company is roughly a billion dollars of cash flow, plus or minus, and is one of the bigger media companies out there. And I've observed with you, and for full disclosure, we do work together as an advisor, but I've observed in the way that you've handled the restructuring process, I've never seen a company manage their employees and their constituents and their advertisers and business as usual as much as possible the way you guys have through a restructuring process. And that is not easy to do. And I've read your internal memos and your letters. And how have you done that? What was the approach? Well, I think the approach was that the operating business is just fine. We had a bad capital structure. And the two are very different. You know, once you got a great house, if you put too big a mortgage on it, that doesn't affect the quality of the house. It's just you messed up on the mortgage. And so we've, I think, conveyed that to our employees and to our partners and our advertisers. And we still get results for advertisers regardless of what our balance sheet looks like. And we've kept them focused. I think with our employees, we've been just ridiculously honest. We've been telling them everything that goes on. If they want to know a detail, we'll give them a detail as long as it's not confidential and we can't say it. And I think at the end of the day, that pays off with every constituency's honesty, surprisingly, works. Yeah, and I think it was honesty, as Bob pointed out. And I also think we erred on the side of there's such a thing as overcommunication. You know, we would communicate either, you know, in writing to everybody, or even, by the way, if we knew that there were some articles out in the press out there, we'd pick up the phone and not just send a note to our employees, but pick up the phone and call our advertising partners, call our recorded music industry partners, call our talent, you know, within the company, and put into context what was happening. And I think that rigor, that constant rigor is the benefit we're seeing right now. But the business performed through the restructuring process. So I would have thought that you would have had at least advertisers of some magnitude saying, hey, Bob, hey, Rich, tell us, are you guys going to be okay? Are you going to make it through? What happens here? Should I give you my business still? You must have had those kind of conversations. Yeah, you have those conversations. I'm sure there's some people who didn't come because they were scared of it or whatever. But I think most people at the end of the day, they're worried about their business. And if we can help them drive their results, we're value. And I think we are willing always to bet on performance. I'm not asking anybody to do us a favor. As a matter of fact, I've got friends when I first came here, I said, you ought to be advertising here. And and I'm sure I bother them to the point of like, leave me alone. What are you doing? You're ruining our friendship. And I go, you know, I'm bothering you because when you finally advertise, you're going to thank me for bothering you. And I do believe that. And I think we have, you know, enough history that I think others believe it too. And I think that helps us a lot. 
So now that you're coming out of it, like I said, really strong business and shedding the bad capital structure in favor of a more flexible one and a healthy one, what's the strategy that everyone should be thinking about as you come out and as you say, this is the new iHeart? Well, I, I think it's, uh, again, it is. If I had all this cash sitting around all of a sudden, <laughs> I would say I'm going to start doing something with it. You know, you know it's interesting. I think we really are hyper-focused on what's our role. Our role is a companionship role. We should be oblivious to technology. So we should be wherever they want to receive us, let's let them receive us. So it's keep the quality of the friend up. Make sure we're open, innovative, open-minded, so we wind up in new places. I mean, podcast, if you had asked us three or four years ago, go, yeah, podcast. Today, we're the number one commercial podcaster in America. Um, and you did some of it through acquisition, We right? did. We were already the number one commercial podcaster by a whisker. And we acquired How Stuff Works, which has got a... It's sort of the opposite of us. They've got a very long tail, big library of sort of evergreen podcast. They've got the biggest podcast, I think, ever that's had a billion downloads, How Stuff Works. And they've got a great management team. So we acquired that, put them together, let their management team run the whole thing. And I think they're doing a great job and it's a great growth area for us. And one that, you know, it's funny, we were looking a couple of years ago at, should we do video? Because everybody's getting a $30 CPM for video online. And we go, that's not us. We will do some video, but you know, we're audio. And then suddenly podcasts came along and we get the same kind of CPMs, if not higher for podcasts than they get for online video. Whereas we used to go in places and the advertiser would talk to us about video, video, video. Now we walk in, they go, tell us about podcast. And so, wow, for once, we're like the shiny new thing. So we're enjoying that. But Richard, I mean, given your hat here, and I know both of you work together on everything, you have uh, this newfound flexibility. Is iHeart a growth business? Is it a business that takes shares, a business that can grow in different ways? How do you think about the business going forward? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've used the term that I think we get to think about the business even more offensively now than we were able to play before. It is interesting if you take a step back, and Aria, when you went through both of our backgrounds coming into these jobs here, the one thing going through this process and operating in a very highly leveraged capital structure, and at the same point in time, continuing to move the business forward, prosper, invest in digital, being able to buy house stuff works, you know, be able to move the business. We had to find ways to invest, even when we had a highly leveraged capital structure. And I think both of us feel that it just taught us to be incredibly nimble, efficient operating executives. And actually, quite frankly, which you always should do, watch every dollar. But the reality is when you have that much leverage and every dollar is so precious and you're in a very competitive environment, how do you hold your team together and how do you move the ball forward and how do you invest so when you come out and are able to be offensive, you haven't lost six months or you haven't lost a year. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of, the way we emerge that we can play offense now because we already have this leadership position. And as we go into the next phase of our growth here, unequivocally, we're at the most exciting time in this business, the most exciting time in this industry, in the audio industry. And we have the platform both in terms of, you know, we've taken share from the radio industry over the last three, four, five years. We've significantly outperformed the radio industry. When you think about the radio industry on a regular basis over this period of time, we need to continue to do that. And then as Bob has alluded to and I've talked about, we've connected consumers with our advertisers. So how do we go after the big advertising pools out there? How do we go after the digital pools out there? How do we take the magic that we've always been so good at and now we're catching up on the math side and we're talking about cause and effect and attribution 
and we now have enough test cases. So how do we tap into those bigger pools and dollars? And so, you know, we look again without giving any projections, but you can look at our historical financial information and we say, okay, we're only scratching the surface of what our potential is and the ability to create tremendous value for our stakeholders. And I think if you look at it, it is, as Rich says, our part of our strategy is create great products, engaged consumers, and then monetize it. And uh, monetization is rent our consumer relationship to unaffiliated third parties. That's our definition of yeah. advertising. And as we find these, we want to take radio share, and I think we do better stuff. We'll take more and more share of the radio bucket. But there's $80, $90 billion in digital revenue. We need to take some of that money. We also know TV has been very effective but not very efficient. So can we take some of those TV dollars? And we're finding, you know, you don't walk away from TV, but if you change your media mix in TV – you can save 10, 20% on your marketing expense and increase your reach, almost double your reach, by mixing radio with TV instead of it all being TV. So you begin to do stuff like that. How much of that could we take? And now we've got podcasting. We have sponsorship. We have these other pools of revenue that we also can tap into. So we become a company that's not dependent on one pool of revenue. And we talk to advertisers in several ways. We talk in terms of transactions, Somebody does want to buy X number of gross rating points, and we'll sell them that. On the other hand, we have people who we talk to who say, wow, I got a problem. I got this with my company, blah, blah, blah. And then we have a marketing discussion where we happen to bring our assets to bear, but we're solving a marketing problem. So we can talk both marketing and media transaction. And I think that's very rare today to find that kind of nimbleness in a company our size. Yeah, I'm, I'm knowing you guys, I would assume that you want to be incentivized by the growth of the company. I mean, you guys want to obviously play to your constituents and build a business, and that's what excites you. But I'm assuming you wouldn't be here unless you thought it was a growth company. Well, exactly. I'm of that age where Rich is a young man, but I'm not. So, uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, we wouldn't be here again without going through what we think the potential growth may be. But, you know, rest assured, we wouldn't be here if we didn't think we can grow significantly more as we look forward than in the past. You know, and it's interesting People talk about, oh, my God, you know, the world has rediscovered radio. The world has rediscovered audio. Back to mm-hmm. one of your first comments about perception. We've never gone anywhere. Bob talked about if you went back to the statistics in the early 1970s, you know, the reach that we had till today. You know, we're still like at 93% of the population. And if you look at all the relative demographics, we're pretty much evenly spread across those. But again, whether it's because of podcasting or anything else out there, the world is okay, like now is your time or the decrease in reach in TV. Yeah. Before I get to uh, a few fun facts here, Uh um, it's no secret. Part of the reason why LionTree does what it does all day is that there is a need for scale in the media business. You know, you are the scale player in broadcasting and audio. But do you think, and you've had this experience, Bob, and so have you, Rich, I mean, Media companies have been part of a consolidation wave. Do you guys think that you'll be part of that? Can you stay independent? Are you going to be consolidators? Are you going to be part of bigger companies? Do you think it has to be part of a bigger scale player? You know, I think we probably can't talk about it. Probably wouldn't opine on it. You know, I think we have great opportunities. And to me, the important thing is, do you have a good business built on a strong consumer base, not baloney? And do you have real economics? So when you get a dollar revenue, you can throw some to the bottom line. You know, we're in one of those periods, sort of like the dot-com bust period, where you got a lot of companies, they got a lot of valuation, don't make any money. We're not that. We believe in old-fashioned stuff. We like making money. And it's also nothing that we can do about it. 
we've got a new ownership group that's coming in, which we're incredibly excited about. We've announced our new incoming board of directors that we're very excited about. And I think the job that Bob and I have is to run the company, drive the revenue, run it efficiently so we get significant OEBDAN growth, make sure we do a good job of capital allocation. And by the way, that's exactly what we did during this last five or six or seven year period of time. As all the restructuring conversations were going on and there were some starts and, and, and starts that didn't get finished, we always said, okay, what's our job? Our job is to do the best job we can as operators running the company, which gives the owners the most flexibility out there to create value. In the new life with a different ownership group and a different board, we have the exact same job out yeah, there. I think our job is, as Rich says, is to maximize the value of the asset. What people want to do with that asset is probably up to a board and the equity holders, et cetera. I've lived through the creation of MTV, which, you know, we almost went out of business a couple of times. And five years later, we were making more money than we anticipated in five years. But the first few years were a little rocky. When I was at AOL, I joined when it was a couple of billion dollar valuation. And, you know, it got as high as, what, 220, 50, I forgot what it was, billion dollars. Yeah. And so you see the value go up in these companies. Yeah. But, you know, it's based on paying attention to asset value. Yeah. What is it about you guys that works so well together as a team? You don't often see that, to say the least. I remember, Rich, first when you were at TH Lee and you were letting me inside the thought process of coming back to work with uh, Bob, you're saying it's just a special relationship. It's probably the only thing I would do in the corporate arena. And you may even mentioned, speaking for Bob, that that he was thinking about bringing in a partner and a CFO at the time, but really just a number two that you could work together. And he said, well, I really want someone like Rich. I want someone like Rich. And finally came to you and said, uh, I remember this story. Uh, well, actually, I just want Rich. So what is it about how you guys work together? It's a tough, tough so conversation special. with Scott Sperling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, I think it starts with an incredible amount of trust and common vision. Rich and I have known each other since the time and Warner merger. Rich was on the time side. I was on the Warner side. And we've maintained friendship over the years. But I think it's also just treat each other as absolutely uh, partners with open communication. We're absolutely going toward the same goal. You know, it's nice to have a partner where you can just be absolutely honest about everything. And we close the door off and go, oh, what's this? Or, wow, look at that. And having that allows us to put two minds, two different perspectives, but sort of a common goal together. And I think we wind up with better thinking, better management than we would do as individuals. And it's also, I mean, from a skill set basis, there's a recognition, I think, on both sides of aspect of we have 70 or 80% of our skills that overlap. Like, I would never dream of making a marketing decision or a programming decision without talking to Bob first, you know, about it. I might be comfortable making 60 or 70 or 80% of the other decisions. I may even be comfortable at this point talking about programming or marketing decision, but my partner's got more programming marketing experience than anybody in the United States. And any idea that I bring to him about an idea to deal with an advertiser, I know I'm going to walk out and he's going to make that better. And I think that recognition and that we're both in this to win. So why wouldn't I go in and have that conversation with Bob? Even if I know he'd be comfortable if I didn't, but I wouldn't be comfortable if I didn't. And so I think understanding the value, unique value we both bring to the equation, that recognition and knowing that every day is something that really strengthens the partnership. Yeah, I've never seen any tension. I've never seen anything but fluid drive to succeed and to win. Best uh, or favorite station you have in, uh, at iHeart? Bob? Z100. I live in New York. I have to say that, don't I? <laughs> I was going to say that. So that <laughs> he's he's okay. WOR. I'm yeah. Z100. Think about it that way. <laughs> yeah, but we both listen to an awful lot of our stations. But whether it's Z and I try and flip around the dial, and you know, it is interesting 
inside running this company now, the pleasure I get to just listening and listening to our talent. When people say to me, what's the biggest surprise you have coming to the company on an operating basis? And I say, it's really our talent. The fact that you put a microphone in somebody, man, woman, and they have to fill four hours a day in that companionship subject that Bob was talking about and that ability to connect with the consumer. So for me, yes, honestly, it's Z100 initially, but I listened to Enrique Santos out of Miami, okay, and he speaks fluent English and Spanish. I have no idea what he's saying in Spanish, but I can feel the energy coming through and I, yeah. I just enjoy that. So Bob, how much of you is still Mississippi? Or are you just full New Yorker now? Oh, no. I still have this drawl, and I probably will never get rid of it, although I've been here since 1977. So I think I'm long gone from Mississippi, but that's still my heritage. Well, we had a guest some time ago named Ken Lowe, who you know yeah, sure. uh, ran scripts, and he also had a radio voice back in the day, and he uh, graced us on the podcast into such an intimate medium with his radio voice. So you want to give us a little sneak peek of how you were back in the day? Oh, I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> Right, well, uh, I was the Mississippi hippie on the air 10 at night till 2 in the morning on WDRQ in Detroit. But uh, I don't think we want to taste that again. <laughs> I, I will say when some people said the tough job in our company is either of our jobs. I actually think the tougher job in our company is being a programmer within iHeart because Bob listens more to our, our radio than anybody out there. And his ability, because he worked in a station, I didn't work in a radio station, so however smart I get, I'll never have the same knowledge base that Bob does. So his ability to, you know, shoot off notes, which are about different liners or about different sounds or the way the commercial breaks are running or something else, that's not easy to be a programmer or a company out Or there. it's not easy to get it out of your system. And not easy yeah. to get uh, it out of your system. I got to New York so. in 1977, I guess, with NBC. Sent me to WNBC in New York when I was 23 years old. So... So I had a wonderful radio career and hung it up at age 25. So to speak, yeah. So here I am again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time with us here on Kindred Cast. And I also am really excited about what's to come and to watch you guys build from here and see the value creation you're talking about and the enthusiasm come forward. And I appreciate all the work together and the invitations and seeing you guys really kill it here. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for your help, too. We yeah. appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ari. You got it. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.